Welcome back to the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast. On today's episode, we cover the topic of pituitary adenoma and acromegaly found under the endocrine section at medbullets.com. Let's begin with a clinical snapshot. A 43-year-old man complains of increased hat size and headaches when he wakes up in the morning. Physical exam reveals mild hypertension, prominent jaw with spaces between the teeth, large hands and feet, and generalized muscle weakness. The clinical definition of acromegaly is excessive growth after skeletal epiphyseal closure due to increased growth hormone. In terms of epidemiology, know that the condition is rare, the middle age presentation is due to insidious onset, and females and males are equally affected. Now for a discussion on pathogenesis. Acromegaly most commonly results from a benign pituitary adenoma greater than 95% of the time or hyperplasia. Less commonly, it's due to an ectopic oversecretion of growth hormone or growth hormone-releasing hormone, such as hypothalamic, pulmonary, and gastrointestinal sources. The pathogenesis involves an increase in insulin-like growth factor, or IGF-1, which mediates effects of growth hormone. In terms of genetics, note that this condition is not hereditary, and many patients have a spontaneous mutation leading to persistent increase in cyclic adenosine monophosphate, or CAMP, in somatotroph cells. Associated conditions include McCune-Albright syndrome, multiple endocrine neoplasia, neurofibromatosis, and tuberous sclerosis. With regards to prognosis, know that this condition has a high morbidity and mortality rate due to associated cardiovascular disease, cerebrovascular disease, and malignancy. Now let's discuss presentation. Symptoms include headache, sweating, clothes and hat fitting tightly, amenorrhea or impotence, and deep voice and slow speech. On physical exam, you may note hypertension, diaphoresis, mitral valve regurgitation, enlarged head with frontal bossing and deepened facial folds, enlarged jaw with increased teeth spacing, enlarged fingers and feet, skin tags, doughy feeling skin, neuropathy, and muscle weakness. All right, now for a word on diagnostic testing. Getting an IGF-1 level is good for screening, and an increase in IGF-1 is one of the most sensitive findings for the condition. You can also check an oral glucose load. This is a very specific exam, and it's good to use this to confirm diagnosis after positive IGF-1 screening. A growth hormone level of greater than one microgram per liter is diagnostic. Growth hormone levels are checked two hours after 75 or 100 grams of glucose. Checking pituitary function allows us to indicate if there's any co-secretion or disruption secondary to mass effect. Helpful levels include a prolactin, thyroid-stimulating hormone, or TSH, luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone, and adrenocorticotropic hormone, or ACTH. Hyperglycemia would be present on chemistry, and helpful imaging scans include an MRI and a CT. The MRI helps check the brain for pituitary adenoma, and the CT can be helpful if there's suspicion for a non-pituitary secretion. Radiography helps us evaluate for associated skeletal changes. Now let's run through some differentials. Gigantism is on the list of differential diagnoses, and the distinguishing factor here is that this is due to an increase in growth hormone before skeletal epiphyseal closure. Another differential is pseudoacromegaly, which can be possibly medication-related, 
And the distinguishing factor here is that there is no increase in growth hormone and IGF-1. Marfan syndrome should also be considered, and in this case, know that it's a collagen disorder. Finally, we have the prolactinoma, the most common secreting pituitary adenoma, and the distinguishing factors here are that prolactin is secreted instead of growth hormone, and these patients have no acromegaloid features. All right, now for treatment. Management of acromegaly requires a multimodal approach. Surgical resection is often first line. If the case is not amenable to surgery, then medical therapy or radiation as neoadjuvant or adjuvant therapies can be considered. These patients require long-term follow-up. The surgical option is endonasal transphenoidal resection. It's rapid and effective, and this is the first-line treatment for non-functioning macroadenomas. Medical management of the condition leads to clinical improvement in 70% of patients. Somatostatin analogs inhibit growth hormone production. This is the first-line medical treatment and includes medications like octreotide or lantreotide. These patients should also receive symptomatic management. These medications help with tumor size reduction prior to surgery, and they're also indicated in non-pituitary tumors. Dopamine agonists can also be helpful. These are second-line medical options, and the options are bromocryptine or cabergoline. Finally, we have the growth hormone receptor antagonist, pegvizimant. Radiotherapy is usually used as adjunct treatment after resection, but it can also be used as a first option of treatment. Complications of the pituitary adenoma include bitemporal hemianopsia, hypopituitarism, cardiomyopathy and heart failure, which is the most common cause of death in these patients, diabetes, colon cancer, sleep apnea, and carpal tunnel. All right, now let's try some practice questions. Question one, a 48-year-old man comes to the emergency department due to four weeks of fatigue and progressive shortness of breath. He also reports diffuse joint pain and swelling and has been having trouble gripping his coffee mug in the morning. He has a history of poorly controlled hypertension despite being on two different antihypertensive medications, exercising regularly, and eating a vegetarian diet. He denies any alcohol or drug use and has no family history or cardiopulmonary disease. His temperature is 99.5 degrees Fahrenheit or 37.5 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 148 over 90. Pulse is 84 and respirations are 15 per minute. On examination, he has coarse facial features with prominent frontal and jaw bones. Multiple skin tags are noted on his back. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in evaluating this patient? Is it one, growth hormone level? Two, insulin-like growth factor one levels? Three, MRI of the pituitary gland? Four, oral glucose suppression growth hormone test? Or five, thyrotropin-releasing hormone administration? The correct answer is two, insulin-like growth factor one levels. This patient presenting with arthralgias, enlargement of the hands, progressive dyspnea, poorly controlled hypertension, multiple skin tags, and coarse facial features most likely has acromegaly. The next step in diagnosis is checking for increased insulin-like growth factor one levels in this patient. Acromegaly is a condition caused by the excessive secretion of growth hormone 
usually due to a pituitary somatotroph adenoma. It can also present with signs of heart failure, hyperhidrosis, enlarged organs, carpal tunnel syndrome, visual field defects, and diverticulosis. Most of the clinical manifestations of acromegaly are caused by IGF-1 levels, which are secreted due to growth hormone stimulation of the liver. Unlike growth hormone levels which fluctuate throughout the day, IGF-1 levels remain elevated throughout the day and are thus the preferred initial test for acromegaly following clinical suspicion. If IGF-1 levels are elevated, an oral glucose suppression test is conducted as a confirmatory test. Know that glucose suppresses growth hormone secretion in normal individuals, but not in patients with acromegaly. If there is inadequate growth hormone suppression after a glucose load, a brain MRI is obtained to search for pituitary lesions that may be manageable by surgical resection. Now for the incorrect answers. Answer 1. Growth hormone level is an inappropriate initial test for acromegaly because growth hormone levels fluctuate throughout the day. Thus, it cannot be used alone in the diagnosis of acromegaly. Answer 3. MRI of the pituitary gland should be conducted only after the diagnosis of acromegaly has been made using IGF-1 levels and confirmed with an oral glucose suppression test. Since incidental pituitary lesions are common in asymptomatic patients, an MRI may yield a false positive as an initial diagnostic tool. Answer 4. Oral glucose suppression growth hormone test is the next step in confirmatory diagnosis for patients found to have elevated IGF-1 levels. In normal conditions, the administration of an oral glucose load suppresses growth hormone secretion and thus reduces IGF-1 levels. However, in acromegaly, growth hormone will not be suppressed. Answer 5. Thyrotropin-releasing hormone administration suppresses growth hormone levels in normal patients but can increase growth hormone secretion in patients with acromegaly. However, this test is not routinely performed due to poor sensitivity. Now for a bullet summary. Insulin-like growth factor 1 level is the most appropriate first step in the diagnosis of acromegaly, an endocrine disorder caused by excessive secretion of growth hormone. Alright, let's try another question. Question number 2. A 35-year-old woman presents to the clinic for one month of chest discomfort and headaches. She describes a fluttering sensation in her chest that occurs several times a day. She has also noticed that her palms have felt sweaty lately. Her medical history includes insomnia, for which she takes Zolpidem. She works as a software engineer and has one cup of coffee every morning. She denies tobacco, alcohol, or illicit drug use. The patient's temperature is 99.8 degrees Fahrenheit, or 37.7 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 140 over 80. Pulse is 106 per minute and irregular and respirations are 16 per minute. Physical exam reveals an anxious appearing woman in business attire. Her skin is warm and her hands exhibit a high frequency tremor. Ankle jerk reflexes are three plus bilaterally. Her laboratory results are as follows. Serum free T4 level is 5.4 nanograms per deciliter. The reference range here being 0.8 to 1.8 nanograms per deciliter. Thyroid stimulating hormone, or TSH, is 6.2. The reference range here is 0.4 to 4.0.
What is the most appropriate next step in management? Is it one, CT scan of the pituitary? Two, MRI of the pituitary? Three, propyl thiouracil? Four, radioactive iodine? Or five, thyroid ultrasound? The correct answer is two, MRI of the pituitary. This patient's presentation with headache, palpitations, warm skin, hyperhidrosis, tachycardia, hyperreflexia, and a high-frequency tremor in the setting of an elevated TSH and free T4 concentration is indicative of a TSH-secreting pituitary adenoma. The next step in management is an MRI of the pituitary with gadolinium to evaluate for the presence of an adenoma. The initial step in the workup of a patient with suspected hyperthyroidism is to measure serum TSH concentration, which allows the clinician to distinguish between TSH-dependent and TSH-independent toxic adenoma and Graves' disease causes of hyperthyroidism. Subsequent or concurrent measurement of free T4 and total T3 levels provides an estimate of the degree of biochemical hyperthyroidism. The presence of a TSH-dependent cause should raise suspicion for a TSH-secreting pituitary adenoma and an MRI of the pituitary should be obtained. Other supportive findings of a pituitary adenoma include headache, visual field defects, menstrual irregularities, and galactorrhea. After the diagnosis is made, the treatment for a TSH-secreting pituitary adenoma includes initial medical therapy with somatostatin analogs to restore a euthyroid state and symptom control with propranolol prior to definitive treatment with transphenoidal resection. Now for the incorrect answers. Answer 1. CT scan of the pituitary is incorrect because a CT scan is inferior to an MRI in terms of soft tissue resolution. An MRI is better able to detect a pituitary mass. Answer 3. Propylthiouracil is a thionamide used to manage hyperthyroidism. However, it is not indicated for TSH-secreting pituitary adenomas because suppression of thyroid hormone secretion increases the drive for TSH secretion and would cause tumor growth. Answer 4. Radioactive iodine is a definitive treatment option for Graves' disease, which ablates thyroid gland function. Patients with Graves' disease would exhibit low TSH concentrations because the cause of hyperthyroidism in Graves' disease is thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulin, which is TSH-independent. It has no role in the treatment of central, i.e. TSH-dependent, hyperthyroidism. Answer 5. Thyroid ultrasound is not typically used in the evaluation of hyperthyroidism in the absence of nodular disease. While a toxic adenoma could present as a thyroid nodule, that cause of hyperthyroidism is TSH-independent and TSH levels would be expected to be low. Now for a final bullet summary. In a patient with hyperthyroidism and elevated TSH, a TSH-secreting pituitary adenoma should be suspected and an MRI of the pituitary should be obtained. With those practice questions and that high-yield overview of pituitary adenoma and acromegaly, we wrap up today's episode of the MedBullets podcast. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session for MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. 
Keep in mind that you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing the topics directly on MedBullets.com. You can listen to these episodes on the MedBullets website or phone app while reading through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the MedBullets podcast thus far, we'd appreciate your consideration in leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast.